You're listening to the Pulled by the Root podcast. This is your host, Heidi Marble. I'm so glad you're here to listen to this episode with adopted person and writer Mindy Stern. Because we're both writers, we do discuss how much we believe that writing is is powerful and important to extract and untangle the complicated feelings that we have as adopted people. We also talk about mothering and adopted parents and what it is to struggle with all of this and create some meaning from it. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Heidi Marble. I have a new microphone and headphones, so (laughs) we'll see how this goes. Aside from that, I am absolutely thrilled to have the beautiful Mindy Stern on our podcast today. Let me read you the small bio that she put on her website that I thought was so impactful. Mindy got her first TV writing job at 48. It took her 26 years to find her birth family. She says it's never too late. You're never too old and to keep going. Hi, Mindy. Welcome. Good morning, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited you're here because as a writer and a person who loves words, uh, when I read your writing, it, it just affected me. And the last piece that you did was actually on John Prine. Can you just tell us a little bit about that before we sink into your adoption story? Because I want to read something to you that I pulled from that that I felt could relate to adoption. I wanted to see what you thought. So. Of course. Please. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that even when I don't realize that my writing relates to adoption, I'm sure it does. Yeah. So what what you said in this piece, and John Prine, he's a singer-songwriter. But what you wrote in maybe about the middle of the piece, you said this. Descending into Camarillo, I watched the sun slip into the blue Pacific waters, joining the whales and the dolphins and the sea lions in a slumber, a bright moon rising in its place. I bet long ago while the children slept, the groves whispered, save us, to the wind, but no one heard because their sleep was too deep. The children rested for days and months and years, dreaming of toys and cars and castles constructed of glass. When they awoke, they forgot how to speak the language of the trees. Okay, think of puppies, think of puppies. (laughs) Try not to cry. Mindy, talk to me about this. I first of all put into context what it was, and and maybe we can talk about why you think I think this relates to adoption. <laughs> sure, it's funny hearing it back. Like, oh, I I get why it relates to adoption. But so that essay was written as a submission to uh, the writing platform Medium. It's currently it actually ends today as we speak. Um, a challenge for writers, like a contest and with several different prompts. And this is my submission for the prompt death. And um, so John Prime is, was a singer songwriter, a country singer songwriter who died from COVID in 2020. And I absolutely, I did not discover him until after his death. I was like, who's this John Prime that everybody is talking about? Um, And I started listening to him and just like deep dive into his music and his background and his music just touches me. I have found over the last year and a half, like so much um, 
or, you know, lesson of so much comfort in his music. And as I was thinking about death, I wanted to write something. I had actually written something about, you know, all the deaths that I've experienced. Um, But then I wanted to do, I just, I don't know, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more unexpected, I guess. And I was driving, as I do, around LA and up the 101. And I'm all, I find that drive really moving. Like always, if you, people who are familiar with it, you take the 101 and you go up this hill and then you do this like big hill down into Camarillo and the ocean is on your left and the Channel Islands and on your right are some remaining citrus groves. And whenever I drive there, I'm like, what, like, what did this used to be? You know, and I know what it used to be. Um, And because of course the homeless crisis in Los Angeles and everything that we've just all, we are all currently living through. you know, the trauma of it all. It just made me think about this place and this man and that particular passage. I think, you know, when you read it back just now, like I would have not told you up front that has anything to do with adoption. But when you read it back, and this happens to me all the time with my work, like all of my work is about being found, finding, looking, searching, even my screenwriting that, you know, tends to be more, there's always something about looking to be saved, um, not being heard, um, you know, a past, um, a, you know, a past that is longed for. Mm. Well, thank you for, for letting me go on that little... <laughs> side street it just moved me in a way it really it really made me feel uh, I don't know a sense of hope and sadness because it felt to me like the innocence was kind of twisted out and um and I do believe you know adoption is really complicated in your story I would love to to discuss you know maybe we can build up for people your journey And then I'd like to really embed some hope and some things that we talked about as far as coping and managing. And so we'd we'd love to learn more. So you can start wherever you like, but the beginning usually works. Sure. Um, Okay. So I'm 53 years old, born in 1968. So I'm a baby scoop era adoptee, Um, born in New York City, adopted through Louise Wise, the now infamous Louise Wise agency of three identical strangers and the focus of Gabrielle Glazer's book, um, American Baby. So my parents were told that I was with my birth mother for the first three months of my life. And that she was a single woman who then, you know, realized she couldn't do it on her own. There are, of course, now lots of holes in that story that are obvious, but, you know, you believe what you need to believe, what you want to believe. Um, And so I just believed it. And so that, like, that story is, like, integral to me. Because for me, it was, like, this longing to get back to her and this belief that I'd been with her and this kind of noble sacrifice, like she had tried to keep me and she loved me and she just realized she couldn't do it on her own, which, you know, there's like this 
sort of like romance almost to that, like, like devastating, of course, but there's also something very romantic, or at least that's how I created in my head was with some degree of romance and fairy tale, like many of us do. But of course, that's what we're told, right? Like we're told it's a fairy tale. So I bought it hook, line and sinker until I didn't. Um, And my parents were great. They, um, you know, loving, if not complicated household, I have an older brother who's also a Louise Wise adoptee, four years older than me. Um, But I was very clear from the get-go that I was going to search. I had no guilt about saying that. I, of course, did all the, you know, familiar things. I hate you. You're not my real mother. You can't tell me what to do. You know, like I had all that teenage stuff and, and probably a little younger than teenage, but sort of like for me embedded in in my existence is this idea that I was going to search like period that was um that was not debatable and I applied for non-identifying information in 1991 and that time I don't know what the law is like now because I was adopted in born and adopted in New York my adoptive parents had to uh, consent, even though I was like 22 years old I guess at that point 22 23 they had to sign uh, consent forms, legal, like notarized consent forms for me to get even non-identifying information. And had one of them been dead, I had to furnish a death certificate, right? Bananas, bananas. Oh like, my goodness. Um, not okay. Not okay. Not okay. Understand, right? Like, you know, so like you have to go to your adoptive parents, even as an adult to ask permission. It's so infantilizing and dehumanizing. Um, my parents said, yes, they, you know, in it and in, in most things, you know, even if they were holding their nose while they were <laughs> supporting it, they, they all, they did support me. Um, and I received in sort of like late 1992, I received non-identifying information, which was transformative. Um, it didn't change anything. It just said, you know, I, of course, like most of us didn't look at all like my uh, adoptive family. And for me specifically that I have blue eyes and, and sort of eyes that, that people comment on frequently. And no one in my family had light eyes, like not even close, not even like hazel. Like they were like dark brown across the board, even my brother, you know? So that as soon as I saw she had, I mean, naturally my hair is brown, not this color. Um, Me too. (laughs) I don't even know what it's Brown, she had she was five six, she had brown hair, blue eyes. It said she was five ten and weighed 115 pounds, which I remember like filing away, like Jesus, that is so skinny. Like, um, and that they had met in college, and it said what sort of was also so just the physical, like I I then had a picture that was validating. So that was extremely comforting. And also what it said about my biological father, um, it also said they were both 23. Um, and what it said about my biological father was that he was interested in going to the Peace Corps. And like the two parts of me were, are still like this fashion loving kind of, um, you know, give me a martini and a cigarette and like Yves Saint Laurent. And then also like I got my master's in social work and I wear Birkenstocks and I'm like a crazy, you know, do-goody lefty. Like, so I was like, oh, I think that like, so that he went to the Peace Corps. Like, that is fucking amazing. Like, so this sense of like um, confirming my identity that, that who I was, who I was becoming was who I was meant to be was, was satisfying. 
I would also say that learning that she was, that was the first time I learned she was 23. Um, I was actually 24 when I got this information, but I had an unwanted, unintended pregnancy when I was 23 and I had an abortion. And I had no idea that she was the same age. And my very first public writing about adoption, which no longer exists just because it's going to become part of a larger history, is about and how the adoption community found me, online adoption community found me and how I found them, was an essay I wrote in, I think, 2016, 2015, something like that, um, that the reason I had an abortion was because I was adopted and that I could not live with myself giving a child away. Um, I could not, I could not be a mother. I mean, that was not even remotely where I was in my life. Um, and that had I had to give my child away, I would have killed myself. Like not, that's not, um, that's neither hyperbole nor fantasy. I had, you know, struggled again, like most of you struggled with depression and had had a suicide attempt as a teenager. And so it was like hundred percent, like guilt-free, angst-free. Um, no one should come into this life unwanted. Um, so when I got that non-identifying information, I didn't do anything more for seven years. It satisfied me for seven years. Oh, Mindy, thank you for sharing something so deeply personal. I think it really gives context and definition to how it impacts our souls and our decisions moving through our lives. And on some of my notes, you said during our intro call, we talked about the Cracked Foundation. And I really would love it if you could expand on that just a little bit as far as how that affects, you know, you're speaking about your own mothering or, in a, you know, you couldn't do that at that time. And perhaps, I mean, what I'm hoping is that we can understand more deeply the trauma that creates these decisions and have more compassion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, that is, um, you know, I want to say I did go on to get married and I have two children and my, my daughter is 22, who is, you know, the age when a lot of this stuff, like when I started writing about this stuff and my son is 20. Um, so I just want to like, like have listeners hear that, that I didn't, like not only did, did I not give up like as a human being, but that um like as an adoptee the the determine my determination to move beyond my craft foundation right to, to to build back better in current parlance um but how i have conceptualized it certainly in my adulthood how i've conceptualized adoption is like i arrived i was born with a cracked foundation, like adoption cracked my foundation. Relinquishment probably is the better way, cracked my foundation. You cannot, we, you know, there are certainly science facts this now, we understand that. Um, but even what so many of us, like adoptee to adoptee, under, we understand it. Like we don't even, it, science is great for like giving us ammunition to explain it to 
the rest of the world, but I think we know it in our hearts that there's something broken at the very, very beginning. Um, And so I think what happens is like, so whatever structure is built above that foundation, you know, is only, we're only as solid as our foundation. And so perhaps if you have an extraordinary adoptive experience, like really empathic and compassionate adoptive parents and, um, you know, everything is like ideal or as ideal as possible, um, you know, your, your structure may be pretty solid, but it means that it's probably going to be like a little sensitive to disruptions and, and certain things. Right. And, and then those of us who, you know, there were things that were less than ideal, empathic failures, whatever, like, like life that goes on on top of that foundation. Well, then it gets more rickety and um, more fragile. And so the work is like, you can't, you can't fix the structure until you fix the foundation. Mm. And, and the fixing of the foundation is not, um, it's, I, for me, I think it's the recognizing that it's there and like loving that crack and, and <laughs> owning that crack. And, you know, like probably to continue with this terrible metaphor, beating this done to death, um, you know, I like, again, like many deputies, you know, tried many things to fill that hole, you know, Mm. and, um, and I think you, until you eventually say you get to a place of healing, like real healing is, and this will look different for everyone. I have a hole. Mm. My foundation is cracked, but I now can take charge of building everything that's on top and whatever that looks like for each of us. Right. Like that's, that's the, that's the journey. That is the journey, Mindy. And I would like to segue because when you find your truth and you begin to fill those holes, you begin to understand the reality of your story, your history. You said this, and I absolutely loved it. In your And I want to talk about your writing about Scrabble. We're going to get into that whole story too. So a teaser right there. <laughs> you said in regards to your adoptive family or mother, I believe, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. Nothing and no one I found replaces you. They just complete me. Wow. Mindy, I want to highlight that. Put it on one of those little airplanes that flies above the sky. Because I think the pain... And the guilt is so significant when we're searching because we feel as if we're being disloyal. And if people can begin to understand that that nothing and no one I find replaces you, I'm trying to find myself. What can you speak to about that? And, and where did that come from in your heart? Well, you know, I... I actually, in preparation for this, I was going through all my old journaling and I found a letter that I wrote. I just want to read the first page. So this is from, well, let me just go back. Where that came from is I, when I found my birth mother in 1999, she had already died. So my mom and I didn't have to contend with those challenges. Also, my father, my adoptive dad, had already died. He died when I was, he died in 1997, 
I had a daughter in 98 and found my birth mother in 99. And um, the fact that Gloria, my birth mother, was already dead, like, you know, my mom could be there for me in like a supportive way. We just didn't have to deal with all that complex reunion stuff. But then in 2018, I found my biological father and two half-sisters who are very much alive, very loving, very amazing. I have, you know, not a um, emotionally easy reunion, but a beautiful reunion. Mm -hmm. And so then what has happened is, I think there's a line in that same essay where I say, I didn't know that feeling whole would come with the cost of feeling guilty. And that's what happened is like from, you know, with my mom, it was like her discomfort talking about them. She doesn't want to meet them. Just how threatened she is by that relationship. And, you know, I mean, I've said it to her and I'm saying it here to any adoptive parent that's listening, like that is horrifically unfair to do to your adopted child. You cannot, we have two families. They are both real. One is not more real than the other, and both are equally important in what they give us and what we need from them. And I say that to birth families too, who who may be listening to, especially birth mothers. Like that's the that's the bargain, you know, for better or worse. That's what you all signed up for, and that we had no say in. So when we find you or them, whomever is listening, you have to understand that that is, it is about us. Like adoption has taken that from us. And for those of us who choose to search, no matter what we find, it is about completing ourselves. I'm giving you a standing ovation. <laughs> like I, I want to curse after that, but I will be. You know what? I, I, I am not opposed to cursing. I sort of grew up on it. My dad is a cowboy. So this podcast <laughs> is rated. Wow, or, I mean, bombs fly. <laughs> Okay, you go right ahead. You express yourself in whichever way you want. When I found my birth mother, and I like my writings, you know, through my 20s are all about like, where was I in my first few months of life? And I have to find her. So at this point, I had found my biological mother. She was dead, but I was still believing that I had been with her for three months. And I wrote this to my mom. So that's the note of what to Blah, blah, dear. My entire life, I have searched, searched for a connection that I once had. Those first days and weeks of my life and the nine months prior, I had the spiritual and emotional bond that only a biological mother and child can share. Being surrendered to you was being abandoned by Gloria, regardless of the reasons or the end results. You have always been at a disadvantage. You could never be her or provide me with what she and I had. And worst of all, as I grew attached and bonded to you, my deepest and most complex fear was that you too would abandon me. All I wanted from you was that depth of soulful connection. And at the same time, I wanted you to stay the fuck away from me. Loving you was the most dangerous love of all. How could I ever trust that you wouldn't leave me too? Thank you, Mindy. Those are the kind of letters that need to be written and the kind of conversations that need to happen. Also, you know, we talked about um, more of your writing, and I'd like to dive into that deeper with you. Clearly, like the letters and you finding yourself in writing. 
what has it been like for you to be able to express in that way? And how can it help others? Because you clearly can paint pictures with your words, but it's not necessary to, to be a brilliant writer to actually be provided with some sort of spiritual relief from writing. Yeah, I'm um, like certainly these journals that I found, you know, I mean, I've been writing the same thing <laughs> for 40 years, at least now I'm making the money out of it. Um, I, I'm just a strong believer in writing empties the container and makes space mm-hmm. for better. Mm. Like whatever that is. I, you know, I'm not like happiness is um, fleeting. Yes. So I'm not, I don't seek to, to like attach to, or like I seek moments of happiness, like what we all do, but what I seek to attain is contentment. Like that's what's lasting is just contentment. And if you're, when you find contentment, you can like ride the waves of happiness and sadness because that's an anger and grief, right? Like, but contentment is like my anchor. And so for me, writing, not, not writing professionally, not writing published work, just any kind, all of writing, just pouring it out, like empties me. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I can keep going. Let's speak to the contentment. That is such a great point. I am learning so much from these conversations and I'm older than you. So you're, you're teaching me this old dog, some new tricks, contentment, boy, oh boy, that, that should be the goal because you're right. The peaks and valleys of happiness and sadness, if you can have that streamline of contentment and have a discipline or something that you can do to provide that space for yourself. And for some of us could be singing interpretive dance, just speaking personally. No, just say like anything creative, like finding it mm. is a creative outlet. I, I'm a big believer in. I'm a big believer in it too. I'd like to talk a little bit before we move on to our badass warriors section. I would really like to talk more about the writing you did about the Scrabble game with your adopted mom. That was so moving to me and so touching. One of the things that you wrote about was how you guys we're able to get into a rhythm and a repose with each other. Can you explain how in her age and in your transformation together, what ended up happening in that relationship? Because we kind of left off where she was feeling very threatened and the letter. So give us sort of what ended up happening. Uh, I think, um, well, first I, First of all, a lot of healing for me happened when I became a mother and my mom is an, is an amazing grandmother. Like she's an absolutely extraordinary grandmother. And my daughter, pure coincidence, although, you know, some don't believe in coincidence. My husband had to go, uh, my husband works in the movie business and had to go make a movie on the East Coast. And I was pregnant and I was planning on giving birth here in L.A., and I decided to go back to New York. My dad, who had passed away, had been dead for a couple of years, was an OBGYN. And so, of course, had all these, you know, I had like many obstetricians available to me. And my daughter ended up being born in the hospital where my dad had delivered thousands of babies. And everyone remembered him and shared 
beautiful stories of him. And he was like the angel in the room. But for my mom, my mom had never had a newborn. She had no experience with newborn. She had no experience with breastfeeding. My brother and I were both adopted at three months old. And so we brought, you know, my daughter's first room was my childhood bedroom. And my mom, um, you know, I, I remember so vividly laying in her bed, my mom's bed. Oh, like when you're breastfeeding and you're engorged and pain and just nasty and nothing's coming out. <laughs> it's horrible. And, you know, my mom's standing over me with this like look of awe and love and fascination and just wanting to be there for me. And like, that is very, um, like, I'll, that changed me. Those six weeks at home, that they changed me. My mom would take Isabel, my daughter, and I would pump for a bottle and she would feed Isabel and change her. Like, she, my mom didn't know about like yellow breastfeeding poops for the moms out there who are familiar. With that. <laughs> That's always such a great surprise. You know, like, we arrived to her with, you know, none of that. And, um, and my mom would take her for like the 11 o'clock bottle, you know, back, you know, when you're like feeding every two to three hours and even letting her take a bottle was hard for me, but I just was, you know, probably having postpartum and just desperately needed more sleep, like every new mother. Um, and my mom would take her and feed her and she would, Isabel would sleep on my mom's chest and all those beautiful newborn things that my mom didn't get. And so the fact that we got them to get, we had that experience together, like Isabel was my first biological relative that I knew. She was the first, you know, she has my eyes, like she was the first person I looked in her face. It was the first time I saw blue eyes mirrored back to me. I mean, all that stuff that adoptees who become moms before finding biological family experience become biological moms. Um, so that's kind of the beginning. And then my mom's like, like the best grandma, you know, like the, get on the floor and play with them and take them for walks. And, you know, just all the stuff that, that is um, what a grandma can do that, that, that isn't required. Like that's what my mom's best at. And so I could, it was healing for me. And it also offered me a perspective, like, cause I got that from stuff from her too. I just didn't get the other stuff that you need from a mom, right? Like the empathic connection and, yeah. you know, and, and as that letter, I read, like, but that's not her fault. That's adoption's fault. Mm. And, um, and maybe an issue of fit. So, which brings me back to the scrabble. So all these years later, so this, my daughter is 22. So 22 years later, um, sometime in, in the last couple of decades, um, my mom and I started playing Scrabble together when she would visit. She lives, she lived in New York and then Florida. And we both love words, avid readers. We read very different things, but, and like she can do the New York Times crossword puzzle with her eyes closed, which is like a life's goal of mine. Will never happen. Um, and we just started to play Scrabble and it became our thing. And we don't really have much in common. Like we have my kids in common. We share political views, but even the way of expressing them is different. You know, it's just, there's just not a lot of fit. There's a lot of love, but there's not a lot of fit. 
And Scrabble became this place where we fit. And what I wrote about that essay is I just went in this, this past July, just last month, I went to see my mom for the first time since before COVID. And, um, you know, she's just, you know, she, it aged her. She's dealing with, you know, macular degeneration and, you know, just aging and COVID and, you know, it's aged all of us. And I, I have tried, I have spoken with her over the last three years about what her kind of don't ask, don't tell policy about my birth family, how that makes me feel. Because, you know, my biological dad, Hal, is amazing. And my sisters are amazing. And I, I got what I needed in finding them because I am so much like them. One of my sisters is like a practically a twin, even though we're only half sisters. Um, and so that also allowed me to shift and heal that foundation, that cracked foundation a little bit more too, because I could see, oh, I can take this from them and I can take that from her. Like, you know, and this from my husband and this from my children and this from my friends, like, like all of it, all this love, like all these, but, and I could then say, mom, like your don't ask and tell policy is so not okay. It's so hurtful. And, and ultimately what it does is destroy our relationship because it pushes me away. Like you're saying, you know, the analogy is to, you know, the family of a gay person who says, of course we support you, but then never invites the partner for Christmas or never asks who they're dating, right? Like you're not really supporting if it means that I have to zip it about them, about who I am. And I think that's the part that adoptive parents get, so many adoptive parents get so wrong, which is this is who we are. And when you ask us, it's like, that's why there's such pain Yes. For us, when we have to silence that part of ourselves because it's who we are. It's like, you didn't like adoption's not a one time act. Like, you adopted us and that's it. It is a lifetime and it ebbs and flows and evolves how you feel about it over the course of a lifetime, just like anything that is the essence of who you are, right? Um, right. It's not frozen and stagnant. And so I had talked to my mom about it in the past and we had some, you know, healthy conversations, but what ultimately happened over a game of Scrabble just this last July is she has macular degeneration and is struggling to see the tiles. And while we're playing, she's, you know, kind of ruminating on the fact that she doesn't know who this, who in her family has macular degeneration because it's genetic and no one had it and she's you know kind of going on and I'm like looking like mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know I'm like not hello saying, I'm like it is a moral line like are you kidding me yeah and, martini yeah exactly like, and you know my head's going a thousand miles an hour like do I say something you know okay please like you're 53 years old do not say something snarky like you know shut up the teenager um but as, as the game went on and as I listened in, it was so tender between us. It was like, I was caught between these two really diametrically different emotions, which was feeling so sad that as my mom's vision worsens, this might be our last Scrabble game. And then also feeling like this anger, like how the fuck can you be sitting there talking like so like um, 
as matter-of-factly about wondering something in your genetics and not like not understanding then why mm-hmm. genetics are so important to me. And so as I sort of like let it digest a little, finally, I just had the courage and I said, you know, I'm listening to you, something to the effect of, I'm listening to you say how, you know, question the genetics of it. And I, I wonder if you can imagine like, now, like, that's my whole life. Like, my entire life, I've wondered, why do I have fat toes? Why do I have blue eyes? Like, why do I have Hashimoto's disease? Like, I wonder what's happening. Like, you know, like, is being a fingernail biter genetic? Like, does anybody, like, you know, and how important, like, my mom's not into fashion at all. And when i learned things about my biological mother. One of the things I learned about her was that she was obsessed with fashion and collecting some wrong, like all this like, you know, crazy fashion. And it was like, holy shit, like even something like that, like these random personality traits um, can be genetic, right? And how those, that, all that information helped me love my, learn to love myself. And so I looked back at my mom and I said, like, it was just never, it was never about rejecting you only about completing me you know mm-hmm. something better than that but how I wrote it was more and she oh. she's like I understand and I love you like it was like very very beautiful and you know it took a lot of courage I when I say it now it doesn't it's like I don't know why that took so much courage I've I've had hard conversations with her before we we do an amazing job of having hard conversations it doesn't mean that I get the outcome I want I'm like, and I also think that's really important for adoptees to hear. Like, yes, the conversation is the healing, not the outcome of the conversation. And I actually, let me clarify, that's less that adoptees need to hear that than I say that like screaming from the rooftops to every adoptive parent. You need to hear us. You need to buckle up, zip it up, and have these hard conversations, like get your ego out of the way. And because by the way, that's parenting. Like I say that all the time, like as a parent of two biological children, one of the most important aspects of my job as a parent is to get my ego the fuck out of the way and be there for my kids and, and work my shit out somewhere else. Like, and it's not always easy. I mean, empathic failures all day long, like that's, you know, but, but what being good enough as a parent requires though, is that you can like separate those things, the things that wound you as a parent, um, like essential for your child to be able to talk about and you have to listen. Um, and be there for them and, and be present for them. And, you know, way too many adoptive parents don't do that. Like, sorry to be. I personally don't think you need to apologize. I think that people that want to be parents, most of us aspire to be great parents and we want to get information so that we can do that. I know I was looking on page 23 of this and page 89 of this. As we begin to shape the end of the interview, one of the things you said to me when we talked last was you talked about adoptees being badass warriors. And I'd also like to circle back to your bio. To get your first TV writing job at 48, it would be really cool for you to just share 
how you've become really strong in that foundation that you've built. And what can you tell adoptees to cheer them on, encourage them? I know that's a heavy thing, but man, anything helps. <laughs> We're out here just flipping around in victimization and it's yeah. just a painful space. I think there's a difference between acknowledging the pain and mm even living in the pain, you know, like you got to like spend some time in it, right? Like there's no, you don't get anywhere from deny it. Um, and victim, like something did happen to us. Something bad happened. Yes. To us. Um, and we can start there. That's true. And then depending on our resources, our constitution, the people we have around us. I mean, there's like a lot of variables, right? Right. Adoptive parents, our adoptive families, our friends, whatever. Um, we can, oh, this is so cheesy. We can rise from the ashes. Um, we do rise from the ashes every fucking day. And, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't believe because I do write so much about the pain of adoption and talk about it very openly, but I'm not a victim of it. Like something bad happened to me and that, that scar, that wound is very much in me, but, and it, and I will also say it does define me, right? Like, like even, yeah, it's impossible not to like something I wrote that I, you know, has nothing to do with adoption on its surface, of course, comes back, you know, unconsciously some way, but that's okay. Because, like, bad shit happens to people all the time. Like, lots of people have, like, their wounds. And so this is our wound. So instead of, you know, my wound isn't, like, like, my wound is, is like, my battle scar. It's my, like, yeah, fuck yeah, this happened to me. And you're not going to stop me. And it's not going to stop me. Like, I am going to fight every fucking way to, for a life that I deserve. And for love that I deserve, because I have journals, oh, nauseatingly so in my 20s. I mean, thank goodness I can't find my ones when I was like 13. I can imagine what those would say. But they're all filled with like, I can love myself. You have to, like, I am, I, they're, they are riddled with not good enough. But then this processing of, and it's all true. Like we, so many of us share the same wounds of not feeling good enough, of not feeling deserving, of perfectionism, of feeling like we have to be perfect to be loved, of being afraid of showing our bad side, of being afraid of love because love is terrifying and pushing people away. Yes, that is all, all of us. And that's beautiful. Like we are fucking amazing. We are the only people, and I know others have said this more eloquently than I'm going to say it now, but we are like the only people who have been like wounded, who are expected to be grateful for what happened to us, right? Like we're supposed to shut the fuck up and hide in gratitude and stay in that place and that narrative. And it's like, no, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to peddle some fantasy and some mythology and silver lining. I don't believe that there's silver linings, but I do believe those in finding meaning and purpose. And there's mm. a really big difference. And so for me, I'm getting so excited talking about this. No, I'm glad you're passionate. You should but, be. This is a fiery well, subject. For me, it's come in the form of writing 
about adoption and connecting to other adoptees. I mean, I actually set up, people were trying messaging me um, like on Twitter and some other public platforms about my writing adoptees and, and editors of magazines and things like that after reading my, my adoption related stuff on Medium. So I set up my email on Medium as lost in adoption land at gmail.com. And I cannot tell you, Heidi, and I'm sure you have the same experience, the number of adoptees that reach out, who reach out to me, this changed my life. I sent this to everyone. I've even had from some adoptive parents or biological families who have been found, who are so grateful for my words. I mean, I had no idea that this was what happened. I didn't even know this was like an option when I started writing on on Medium and, and personal essays, but finding the adoptee community, my words helping someone else, finding a place for my words, my own growing from writing, from living this journey is, has given my life absolute meaning. Um, Beyond what motherhood could, beyond what, you know, fighting for a career as a screenwriter has. I mean, they're all part of the same thing. Like they're all part of the journey of not giving up and keeping going. And and my 16-year-old self laying, you know, in an ambulance bay at an emergency room, having her stomach pumped, right? Like don't fucking give up. Like no more of that bullshit. And it's not like I haven't been plagued with suicidal thoughts throughout my life. I mean, of course I have. That's what depression does. That's what I think adoption does. That's why we have four times higher suicide rates than than non-adoptees. But like I say that from the the bottom of my soul to every adoptee out there struggling, like, like you will find... You will find it, whatever it is. And I'm not saying that's not like some Pollyanna fantasy. Like this isn't um, whatever it is, even if it's just a moment of grace, you will find it. And that moment will propel you to find the next moment of grace. Andy, I can't think of a better way to end this interview. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your heart and your soul and your words. And giving meaning to the pain. And I think that that is a very important point, meaning. There's so much healing in the meaning. And it doesn't have to be writing. It can be any way of expressing and sharing. So this time has been such a gift with you. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you so much for having me and for the work that you're doing for all of us. Well, I just want to have a martini with you and take that drive to Camarillo. Too bad it's we do so early. We should next. We should have we known we would have scheduled this for. Oh my gosh! Hour. Yeah, we we should have. What were we thinking? <laughs> Ten o'clock. I'm going to start my day now. Well, you know. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Heidi.